Hey, show them what you think. Nobody thinks John's voice is a little deeper than it usually is. He felt like the mic set in. That's why I can't say this nigga. Well, now I'm listening to the smooth sound of the Street Academy podcast. <laughs> Everything. Academy. I think it's really cute the way you matched your shirt with your wall, your wall art suites. I mean, you know, we do what we can, you know, just a little drip. You see, I'm just a little drip. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how those two greats would feel about you talking about Atlanta in the way that you were speaking. Well, are you talking Ooh. about Malcolm X and and well, and Ken- I couldn't tell that, that was Malcolm X and who is that? Ken- I thought that was I thought that was Outcast because that's. That's like their. I know home. it's it's a play on it's a play on it, but I mean to be to be fair, like Outkast, Andre 3000 is my my favorite rapper of all time. I'm not saying there hasn't been great things that Lauren came Hill. out of Atlanta. Lauren Hill is my favorite artist of all time. We're not going to get into a music discussion. That's going to be not, a whole. We're not, we're not bring gonna. me bring me back for that one though, because I have plenty to say. We're not. Oh, I I didn't realize that was Malcolm X and who did you say? Martin. Oh, it's Martin Malcolm X. Well, Martin, Martin Luther King. About you talking about Atlanta. All right, That's John, what I'm saying. I, I have things, but it's cool. <laughs> yeah. All right, we good. We ready, y'all? Yeah. Welcome going? back, y'all. Sweet Academy Podcast, where we keep one foot in the academy and one foot in the street. Beats. <laughs> Yo, this is amazing. I'm excited. Uh, shout out to everybody on uh, on live stream, YouTube, folks watching on Facebook. Um, folks watching everywhere, super, super excited. As you all can see, we got a full got, house. Man, we got a full house up in here, man. Like, we we doing it. You know what I'm saying? We, look, it's pretty kind of podcast. <laughs> 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 Hold on, bro. This thing, we're to blow up. Got a couple <laughs> new followers, couple new subscribers. Christina, I seen the subscribe. Appreciate you. Everybody, make sure y'all go and y'all subscribe. Y'all follow us at Street Academy podcast on ig we just got a feature on another podcast ig mm-hmm. so i mean we moving man we getting things going i promise you about another year or so this thing bringing in dough we're bringing in <laughs> money, you know what I'm saying? we gonna be taking flipping black all businesses controlling content that's what we doing around here so that's yeah. what's going on um as you all can tell we got a full house super super excited about um about about the topic for today. Um, and I think Amber, uh, you wanna go yes. ahead and kinda uh, take us into that, just introduce us on that. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna give us the rundown of what we're gonna happen, happen today. So now in season two of Street Academy podcast, we are a pinch more organized than we were before. And so we are now in segments. So we start off our segment, we start off our, um, our podcast this time with um, check-ins. We're going to skip past that and allow our guest co-hosts to introduce themselves. So we're going to start with introductions. Then we're going to go to a segment called Off the Georgia Dome, where everyone will give their quick thoughts about our topic for the day. And this time, since last week, we already, from our, the, the standard co-hosts, you already heard what our quick thoughts were about the topic, which is what does it mean to be Black? We're going to give 
um, that moment to our co-host today, our guest co-host, so that they can say what do they quickly think about what does it mean to be Black. Then we'll just go right into conversation, and then we're going to close with a segment that we call the takeout boxes, which we will share what our main takeaways are. So we're ready to get started. I just want to allow our co-hosts to introduce themselves. We can just go, we can go with Christina, then Kunle, then Elizabeth. Uh, what's up, everybody? Good morning, good morning. I am Christina, uh, born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I have to preface it. It's New Mexico, the state, not Mexico, the country, because everybody always gets that confused. Um, I am half Black, half Mexican, I identify as Black. Um, my experiences growing up in New Mexico, very Black. Um, so I'm looking forward to sharing more of that. Thank you, Christina. Um, I am Kunle Owolabi, uh, Nigerian royalty, the plantain poppy. Um, <laughs> uh, originally from Chicago, <laughs> Illinois, um, Nigerian by heritage. Um, identify as Nigerian. And that is me. Thank you. Welcome. Good morning, everyone. My name is Elizabeth. I was born in, and kind of raised in Ethiopia. I moved when I was six, and I spent the rest of my childhood in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I identify as Ethiopian. And yeah, Ethiopian. Thank you. Welcome, co-hosts. Everybody out there in internet land, just tap it up for our co-hosts, our co-guest panelists. One thing that we didn't do, Jackie and John, last week is talk about where what our individual heritage is. And so I'll start and then I'll let you all say that because that's relevant for this conversation because we're talking about what does it mean to be Black and what are all the types of Black and how our different perspectives can be shaped by our own individual heritages. Right. So I am Black American on both sides, mom and dad are both Black American from the South. Families are from Georgia and from Alabama. Okay, I guess I'll come in. Um, my name is Jonathan Grant. I'm originally from Jacksonville, Florida. Um, all my people from the South, um, I think, I want to say my cousin did like a whole genealogy and found out the, the, the first bank he was able to go on my mother's side was... Um, our earlier ancestors was dropped off at this huge um, plant, not plantation, but it was like a huge like slave port. I think mm. it was in Charleston, South Carolina or whatever was like mm. the biggest one at that time. And so he was able to trace our lineage on my mother's side back to that, to that port. Um, so I don't know where I'm from past that, but uh, we was all South Carolina, Georgia and Florida all there. Wow. Um, I am Afro-Caribbean. That's how I identify culturally. Um, my parents are both Caribbean, but my mom and as far back um, as her family goes, um, <laughs> interestingly, the they are Black American because they are from an island that is colonized and currently occupied by the United States of America. And um, the history of that island is that it switched <laughs> it switched um, hands as far as governments, um, but she's from the US Virgin Islands. My dad is from the British Virgin Islands. So technically I'm black American and British, like I guess, <laughs> I guess politically. I mean, I know it's like politically or like citizenship. It's wait, it's, I didn't catch that earlier. So your dad is from the British Virgin Islands and your mom is from the US Virgin Islands. Right. What do they call themselves there? Virgin, like, Virgin Islanders. Virgin Islanders. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
so both both islands call themselves virgin islanders mm-hmm. interesting okay yeah because well there are separate islands too so someone from saint thomas would call themselves like a saint tomian oh saint tomian i didn't know that i didn't know that Hmm. Today years old. Okay. <laughs> oh, and I forgot to say my identity, but I identify as Black, African American, and I identify as African as well. Yeah. <laughs> I identify as Black and more Black. <laughs> I also identify as Black. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into this conversation. That I'm, I'm still kind of like, I, I just with the U.S. and the British Virgin Islands, just not even recognizing how this stuff connect i'm still kind of like complicated i really need a geography lesson um and just <laughs> study i actually have an africa map in my hallway and i've just been trying to test myself um and with just like my, i test myself and my boyfriend where we're just like okay let me just say what are the countries that border chad and because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to understand like okay so like let's think about ghana what four countries or three countries or whatever just because i'm like i need to understand the the geography of Mm-hmm. It's the motherland. But anywho, all right, we're gonna go right into it. Elizabeth, Kunle, and Christina, what does it mean to be black off the Georgia Dome? What about a minute or so apiece? Ladies first. Yes, okay. Elizabeth, Kunle, Christina. What oh, okay, that's the order. Sorry. So um in order I think to be black is to um identify with your ethnic self, um, whether or not you have direct ties to Africa or not. Um, I think it's very much affiliated with your skin color and how the world treats and receives you. Um, I think from a from an outside perspective, I think the, that blackness is very much tied to skin color and the way that society kind of, you react to how society treats you. And then culturally, I think blackness is the collective experiences or the collective definition and accumulation of historical and ancestral kind of traditions and patterns that we maintain, that we collect, that we um, continue to kind of keep alive through tradition, through storytelling and through um, community. And Christina, can you share what you think it is, what it means to be black? Um, I think Honestly, that blackness cannot be identified in one thing because it's all encompassing, it is everything. Um, I think blackness is truly revolutionary. I think blackness is imagination. I think blackness is creativity. I also think blackness is struggle and I also think blackness um, is you know, overcoming and resiliency and resistance. So. Um, it's really hard for me to kind of dwindle down blackness into just like one thing because it just means everything mm. to me. Snap, snap, snap. Nice, snap. nice, nice. <laughs> well, I would love for Kunle to come back so he can share his, but whenever he comes back, we'll be able to talk through that. Mm. So then let's just jump into the conversation. So we're all coming from all these different perspectives. I'm, I want to kind of start with Christina a little bit in terms of you being um, biracial and you have being half Mexican and half black. How, what were some of the ways that you had to kind of grapple with your identity growing up? So for me personally, I think contrary to like a popular belief about um, people who, you know, are biracial or like mixed race that there's this struggle with identity and that's not a struggle that I ever had. Um, I think that 
my phenotype, uh, my, my the way I'm built, you know, especially my hair when I was younger. Um, it everything about me kind of looked more or leaned more to a blackness. And so growing up in New Mexico, there wasn't a lot of black people, but um, there were enough. We It was a very segregated city. Um, and so everybody who was black lived on one side of the city and that, that's where we lived. Um, everything about my household growing up was black. Uh, we grew up in the nation of Islam, which um, I'm not a practicer or a follower of at this time, but it's very black, it's very black centered, everything about that the philosophies. And so there was never a struggle for me personally, um, identity wise, um, Mexican people were not welcoming. They were not kind. Um, they did not treat me as if I was a Mexican person. They treated me as if I was other. They treated me if, as, as if I was black. I, I didn't got into more fights than I can tell you growing up because I didn't got called a nigga or a mayate, which for those of you who don't know, who that's a Spanish word for nigga. And so um, some of my- Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And so some of my first, you know, actually, to be honest with you, um, some of my first experiences with racial, racial prejudice came not just from Mexican people, but actually my own family members. Um, my mother, when I'm the oldest, and when my mom had me, her family completely stopped talking to her for years um, because she was with a Black man. Um, and there's still been issues. I have two living uncles who I have no communication with to this day, who quite frequently have called us niggers on numerous occasions. Um, uh, my first encounter with what actually one of my uncles was that him yelling and screaming at my mom about her bringing her nigger babies wow. around um, and that he has half white kids and that there was a difference that his kids were half white. So his kids would be accepted where her kids wouldn't. And so for me personally, there's never been a grappling um, of who I am. I've always embraced um, my Mexican heritage and my Mexican identity. I love Mexican food. Um, some of the best food on the planet, so let's not play. But um, as far as who I was and who I am, everything about me was centered and rooted in Blackness. And so there was no identity struggle for me. And, and as, as I said, um, my mom is Mexican, my dad is Black. I would never take away from anything about who she is um, because she's just been such a, a great anchor in my life. But I've always respected how she also understood that there were things she couldn't give us because she was not black. There were moments where I had to watch her kind of step away from mothering and say, you gotta go and learn stuff from these women because I can't give you that. I can't understand that. And so I've always respected and appreciated about that about her. And so, you know, to double back around, I, I, I've never had an identity struggle in that. Oh, would you mind sharing what's like, what's one of the examples of one of the things that your mom said, I can't really handle this. You go talk to someone else. Um, yeah, so when I was growing up, um, as I stated earlier, physically, right, I just looked very different um, than all the girls. My school was predominantly Mexican. There was only about four or five Black girls. Um, we all kind of grew up in the same neighborhood. Um, you know, it sounds funny to say, but I'll just share this because it is relevant. I have a very large behind. I'm very curvy. And that's not what the other girls look mm -hmm. like. And so I remember coming home one day. My mom's not built like that and so I remember coming home one day crying because I had I was getting made fun of because my bottom half and um I was really upset and my mom was like I want you to come I'm going to set you up and I want you to go talk to um some of the women in the neighborhood she's like because I, I can't 
help you through this. I can't explain to you what this feels like. And I also, I remember very distinctly, she telling me, I understand that this is because you're black. And so she kind of just gave them off. Um, and I got a lot of really good knowledge and a lot of um, self-confidence. There was obviously some things I had to work through because kids could be cruel, but um, that was just an example. She would do that a lot. But my mom was also really good about learning things. Like when I tell you, um, when I was younger, my mama could braid. My mom was the best braider in the neighborhood. Um, and we, I never stayed with my hair undone. And everybody wanted to come get their hair braided for my mama. So there were things that she embraced um, to make sure that, you know, we kind of felt very comfortable in our blackness. But she, when she knew that this was something she couldn't handle because she couldn't identify, she very much stepped away from it. And I've always appreciated and loved and respected that from her. Wow, shout out to your mama, man. Yeah, mama's, mama, mom Dukes is great, I love her. Wow, that, I don't, I don't hear that story as often. Like, I really appreciate you sharing that because mm -hmm. I feel like of the interracial kind of stories that I've heard, it's been with, uh, there's, mm, more oftentimes than not, there's a story of the one of the parents just really not having an understanding at all of the other parents' racial background and kind of like, I think not doing what your mom did was just to say, I know where the edges of my competencies are and I'm okay with that. <laughs> and I'm going to actually, you know, reach out and, and like give my daughter what she needs because I know my limits. I feel like that's so beautiful. That's such a... Yeah. <sighs> I feel a little seriously, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just thinking about the, the, my competencies. I like that. What'd you say? I said, let's go ages of my competencies. I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> <laughs> just, and then just the, the the struggling with your still with your Mexican side of the family, and then even that dynamic of the Mexican and white cousins. Do you have any relationships with the Mexican and white cousins? Absolutely not, and it's very much centered around the racial dynamics. Um, matter of fact. Uh, most recently, there was an argument that took place. Um, like, so real quick, for those of you who don't know, I have a brother that did play in the NFL and he was actually one of the football players that kneeled right along with Cap. Obviously there was a lot of pushback um, and a lot of pushback towards the family particularly. Um, and, the, and so some of the cousins, one of them in particular reached out. He didn't reach out to my brother, he reached out to my mom and was like, your children are niggers and da 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 da. And so, you know, we had to like, nah, you're not coming at mom. If you got a problem with anything, you gotta come at us. And um, that's always kind of the go-to for them. When there is any interaction, it always kind of ends in, don't forget that, that who that's who you are, right? And so for me, that's never, I think that's a large part of why there's never been this struggle. Because uh, for, for me, Mexican people have always, reminded me that I'm not one of them, right? Or they've always let that mm -hmm. be known. And so um, black people were very embracing. Um, black people loved me through all of my struggles. Um, and I don't, I don't see why I wouldn't return that to my community because they gave that to me, so. Mm. Nice. There is so much, there is so much there. Like, I'm just thinking about like this, um, this uh, sort of unity around like Latinidad and just like this sort of like, overall unity, but there's certainly like anti-blackness that people get called out on. But my real question is like, when were hands thrown? Because you ain't just gonna be throwing around the N-word <laughs> like that. Like when, when were the hands thrown? That's my question. <laughs> Uh, very early, very early. Let's see. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, honestly, my first fight around that was um, in third grade and a little Mexican girl, she was following me home. It was me and actually one of my other friends who was half black. She was half black and half white. 
and she they were following us home her and all her cousins and it was nigga this and nigga that and I had to turn around like I'm not gonna be too much more night like that's not what we're gonna do and uh it was like what you gonna do my out there and so and show them what I could do and that hey. happened on numerous occasions it wasn't uncommon and uh to have to defend um my blackness in that regard so that, and that, that we're not even crazy. talking about getting into like teachers at schools like and all that, that. yeah yeah Oh my God! Teachers in school. Yeah. No. Yeah. So speaking of, it just reminded me that black people can't catch a break anywhere. Uh, <laughs> no, I almost want to like reach through the screen and be like, "Are you okay? Are you whole? You did you make it?" <laughs> I just New Mexico is not a place in my mind that I would put on the map as being a problematic state. Just because, also, I don't know anybody else from New Mexico, but it's just like right. that sounds very Mississippian of of. Uh, but that's I think yeah. And, and no, no shade to Mississippi people. Yeah. People always kind of get that, like, what? They don't like black people? And they, how? And like, it's a predominantly Mexican state, right? But it's also, um, it's heavy white. And so what I always tell people, what I always explain to people is that bigger than racism is anti-blackness, right? Like that's always prevalent and it's always there. And um, so many other non-white groups have tried to or have embraced anti-blackness in an attempt to kind of assimilate with white culture and so as i've gotten older there's no surprise to me that 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 is what my experiences were it's just like yeah this is who people are because people are very embracing of white supremacy and anti-blackness is like at the core of that so right i want to such an important point go ahead elizabeth I think I was thinking and as I was watching the, the previous session that you guys did and like the proximity to whiteness that you guys were talking about and what you're saying, Christina, about people, it's like a self-defense mechanism where it's like, you know what the institutions in play are, you know what the positions of power are. So you just naturally want to gravitate towards wherever the source of power is and you want to alienate, you know what I mean? Like I'm a step away from you. Like if I catch a, the tan in the wrong direction, I'm, I'm black too, or I could be perceived as black. So in an effort to kind of make sure that the divide is as big as I can make it, like I will make sure you know that I am closer to being white than you will ever be. And I'll do my very best to make sure that I will forever move closer and closer and then therefore distance you more and more. And when I think about my, my identity as an African-American, African woman, um, and just the history of Africa and the way that the white colonizers have continued to, to create divide like you, when you look at Ethiopians, like you can't, I can't even in my own, like I know Ethiopia, I, I can't look at another Ethiopian and, and tell you what ethnic group they, they're a part of. Only language will tell you that and language you can learn, but in Ethiopia right now, there's this huge kind of ethnic kind of almost warfare that's going on where one ethnic group is saying I'm better than the other ethnic group. And so all of that kind of like self-seated hatred has even reached to countries where you can't visually separate people. There's no marker that says like, okay, you're white, I'm black. So if that exists in a place where visually I can't separate and you can't distinguish from one another, I'm not shocked, I guess, that it continues to happen in places where you can visually, um, it's easier to visually separate people, you know? Mm. 
So for you growing up, Elizabeth, when you came over like around six, how was it for you being like, I know you said the, the, um, your school was predominantly white that you went to. How mm -hmm. was that being probably one of the black kids and then also being one of the non-black American kids, like something that people might not have been accustomed to seeing? How was that growing up? I mean, I was never white enough to be white and I was never black enough to be black. Right. So it was always like, you speak too white to be around the black kids and then it was always like but you're not black you're not white you know what I mean so I was very much aware of the fact that I was other always and so I could never find synchronous like a synchronized kind of community to be a part of outside of my Ethiopian family um and even like Boston has the Ethiopian population has increased dramatically since I've grown up but while I was growing up my family was the only one in the school so we were always like othered in so many aspects right so um, and education was a huge thing. And I, and unfortunately there is this, there was this culture of like, if you are well-informed or if you, if you really care about your education, then you're kind of, you're forfeiting your black card. Um, and that was the, the, the vibe that was, that existed at the school that I went to, where it's like, if you're in AP classes or if you're in honors classes, like you, you, you're not really that black, you try to be white, you know? Um, and then in those classes, you're always looked upon to kind of comment on the black experience. So it's, you're always kind of like, where am I, you know? Um, and so defining my identity, I think came more and more in college when I started taking more African-American history classes that weren't focused on, I feel like history classes always started at the civil war um, and nothing happened before that. There was no conversation about who we were as a people and what happened to us as a people. So resilience and kind of self-understanding didn't exist before then. And even in Ethiopian history, like Ethiopia was never colonized, but there's so little history that is taught to us. Um, and I, even in the movie Wakanda, right? Like we all, I feel like we all gravitated towards it because we finally, we got this representation of who we were prior to this like ravaged people of slavery um well kind of horrible <laughs> yeah exactly rp chadwick mm. keep going i'm sorry that no, was just that's like continue mm. yeah there's so much there kunle we know that you just came back and we didn't you didn't get a chance to say what is black what does blackness mean to you um so <laughs> whatever what the co-host co-guest just said and go into what your definition is um I think it's it's interesting for me because honestly, um, so my first name is Chris, um, and my father named me Chris because uh, he was he was Catholic when he was younger, and so when you turn fourteen, you get named after um, one of the saints, and he got named after Saint Christopher. Um, and then once he got to America, he started going by Christopher instead of because I'm named after him. His name is Adekunle, and I'm Adekunle. He started going by Christopher. Because in that in in the eighties and like late seventies, like coming to America, like it was it was difficult for Nigerians uh, or Africans just in general to really get like corporate jobs with their names. Like people didn't really care to pronounce or understand. Like it, your your application basically got thrown away immediately if you didn't have a, a English a regular name essentially. Um, so he named me that because. Uh, he knew how America worked. So growing up, I had like a uh, an identity crisis for the most part. Like I didn't identify with Nigerians at all, um, even to the point that 
you know, especially because growing up, I grew up in black areas, but there weren't a whole lot of Nigerians around me. So like the Nigerians I knew were like my father's friends' kids um, and all of them were weird. So it's like, I don't, like if this is what Nigerians are, if this is the representation of Nigeria, I want no, no, no parts of that. Um, even to the point that uh, my father asked me, I think when I was like nine or 10, he asked me if I wanted to learn Yoruba, which is the tribe that I'm from, the, the name of the language. And I told him no. Um, you know, like I was already getting made fun of, like Olabi is my last name, and I would, you know, Oso Wobbly, uh, Oso Sloppy. Like oh, they dang. had, no, also, yeah, Oso Wobbly. So creative in their cruelty, yeah. man. People are so cruel. Yeah. You know, the, the African booty scratcher. That's like oh, that yeah. was like a common oh, one. Um, yeah, I don't know. Even have you seen like the the new hairstyles where like the kids kind of have like the have dressed type thing. Like me and my cousins were doing that when we were in like seventh grade. Like we're just with, like wash rags. Like that's a common look in in Nigeria and like that is now like like popular like everybody you see in the NBA has that same look and it's like back in the day we were getting made fun of heavily for that heavily for that and mm-hmm. now that's like so I, I've, I've had like a struggle like within like the last five or ten years with people who have started to claim you know their African roots and look for you know where um where their ancestry comes from because these are the same niggas that was calling me African booty scratcher 20 years ago. And like, I had like a real issue with them. So it was like, nah, now all of a sudden you want to know where you can find dashikis? Fuck you. Fuck you. How you like about that? We couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> you don't really care I mean, about that. I mean, I mean, I've just, I've had, I've had, I've had real issues with that. I mean, I've, I've gotten, I've gotten a little better with that over the last couple of years, but when that that first hit like five five to seven years ago, and everybody was like, "Oh yeah, well I did my ancestry thing, and I'm I'm like twenty seven percent Nigerian." I'm like, "We are not claiming you." Um, that's just, but yeah, I, I, so I have I have like a, a weird a weird relationship with blackness in America and like an understanding that I'm Nigerian and how blackness is looked at now, even within myself, like, because I wasn't always going by Kunle. I started going by Kunle when I was 17 and I met a group of, at Nigerian camp meeting, I met a group of Nigerians like that were the same age as me who understood my same struggles, my same plights, and they they identified with it, but they still understood their culture. Like, so now I'm, I just started learning how to speak Yoruba, like maybe two years ago, but like that, that's like a, a, a more current thing for me. So like in the same way that like, I, there are people who are just now starting to accept, you know, their blackness beyond America. Like I've just started, not just started, it's probably been like 10, 15 years, but like, it hasn't always been the case for me as well. So I have, I have a, a weird relationship between it all. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it's I actually got kind of a two-parter to, to Kunle. Number one, me and Kunle go back um some years um, you know, doing music. I kind of stopped for a minute. He kept going, and so he's much more successful at this point than I am. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Uh, uh, but I, I remember back when, when we was on the Twitter mixtape, um, when I first got introduced to you um, in like the early 2000, might have been 2011, 12, something like that. Um, your uh, um, 
your uh, your artist name was at just Chris. So you didn't go by Kunle then. I knew you was Chris and then later on knew you as Kunle. And I know now your artist name is Love Kunle. And so um, I'm, I'm interested to know in terms from, a, so you said you I started embracing your Nigerian name at 17, but artistically you were still going by just Chris. And so I'm wondering how, you know, what, why, why did you not go by Kunle then? Was it to be more accepted in hip hop? Was it so people, was it for marketing purposes? I know a lot of people do that with their names so that they can just market them better, that kind of thing. So that's my first question. And then secondly, um, what was your experiences, I guess, in growing up in a Nigerian household and your, your and this is kind of to everybody really, um, you all's, um, um, I guess, narratives or discussions around African-Americans, right? Like, were you all kind yeah, of- Yeah, I'm curious about that too. Yeah, like, like what was the, because you have some people who come from non-Black American families who say, who kind of have an understanding, have a Pan-African point of view. And so they understand the diaspora, they understand white, you know, white supremacy, you know, they understand colonization and all of that. And so they have a different uh, narrative and a way in which they, they discuss Black Americans than other non-Black American families. And I've had some of my non-Black American friends say, oh yeah, we was definitely told to stay away from y'all, y'all lazy, y'all this, y'all that. So I would love for you to talk about that, Kunle. And then at some point, Christina and Elizabeth, maybe you could speak to that second part as well. Because I don't know if y'all uh, Okay. Yeah, so with the music part, it was more so from a, a marketing perspective. Um, Chris, I got like, so I started off when I was much younger as going by Big Chris, and then I went to Just Chris because I lost weight. Oh, I lost weight. <laughs> 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 so I started going by Just Chris. Chris Wallace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and then eventually I went to, I went by Kung. The reason why I didn't want to go by Kung like, because I know I didn't make traditional Nigerian music and I didn't want to be identified as a Nigerian artist. It really wasn't until Wale came out. Uh, Wale was the one who kind of pushed me in the direction of going towards Kunle, but I couldn't figure out how to market myself so that Kunle made sense because there are a million different uh, artists in Nigeria named Kunle, which is why I added the I. I saw somebody spell it with an I one time. Like they didn't know how to spell my name and they spelled it with the I at the end because they thought that's how it sounded phonetically and or how it was spelled. Um, and I thought it looked really dope. And, no. and I thought that like it had like a creative spin to it. And that's how I thought that was your real name. Like it's not the E I. No, there's there's no I on Kunle in like my my government. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. So um yeah, that's how the music part went. As far as living in a uh, American household. So the with my my family, because my family has like we've like lived in the same household, like cousins and aunties and all of that they've always been very aware of my mother and my mother understanding like knowing that my mother was American it wasn't until we moved to Atlanta we moved to Atlanta that <laughs> it's a whole double episode in person this gonna be some bowls wrong today Atlanta is about the bowls it wasn't until we moved to Atlanta when they started going to like a Nigerian church um and that because my mother has really in embraced the culture people didn't even know that she wasn't Nigerian. Okay. So 
they would talk around her like they would talk around any other Nigerian and just blasting Americans. Mm-hmm. And so um, she would never, because my mother's a non-confrontational person, especially because you know that's a re- those are really my father's people. She wouldn't really say much even to my father, but she would say it to me because I'm from Niger- Chicago and I am very confrontational. It was nothing for me to be like, excuse me, I don't know if y'all realize my mother is American and what y'all not finna do. I'm half American, to be clear. Like, so what y'all not gonna do is keep talking, but like, like they, like Nigerians do not have in the last, and things have changed recently, but in the last, you know, like 15, 20 years, Nigerians don't have a real appreciation for the struggles that black Americans have done to make sure that they can actually succeed in this country. And so having those type of conversations, has helped like my father's generation understand why why their perspective of black americans is so off like how they feel like they're lazy and all of that it's like they don't have a real understanding or they didn't have a real understanding of what black americans have gone through because yo nigerian ass could have never been a doctor in this country if not for the black americans that did what they did so understanding that now um they that's that's kind of how like the 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 relationship between black americans and nigerians in my household works now um versus like 20 years ago but it's, it's just people are a lot more aware of their surroundings um because yeah Ni- nigerians will, will blast americans in a, a quick second until you you put them in check and that sound, it reminds me a lot of what you were saying christina about your experience with mexicans um and just how we will like there's levels to it, right? Like the it's like whiteness is the ultimate goal and everyone tries to kind of like step themselves a little bit closer, a little bit closer and a little bit closer and, or a little bit further than, I think it's like white and then African-American and then everybody else kind of just trinkles in the middle and the closer they can kind of get to whiteness and the further they can get to blackness is how they try to like self-identify or we try to self-identify, I think as a, um, as a, colored people who have an attachment or um, some kind of attachment to another culture, right? So it's like, although we may be black aesthetically, we, if we can identify with another culture, another country, somehow we feel like we're, we're better than African-Americans because we, we have this place that we can call our own. And then we also have this, um, we don't share the, the history of slavery. And so that just inherently makes us better, which is so problematic. Um, and I think that, um, as children even we can be raised to feel like we're exceptional for that reason like we're you're not you're you might be black but you're not african-american so don't don't be on don't be out in the streets acting any which way you know and so it's really sad that that's like the the benchmark that is kind of like you can you have to be better than this class of people um who it's just like you, if you forget the history, if you just completely ignore the reality, the systemic oppression that continues to this day, it's even then that's like a completely flawed way of thinking. But um, like what you said, Kalani, about like, if not for the experience and the struggle and the fight of African-Americans, like we couldn't, we couldn't, we would have no footing here, you know? So what were those some of the messages you received at through your Ethiopian community that like, because you weren't black American, at least you were a little bit better and we weren't enslaved. So we don't identify with that. Those were, that's what you heard growing up. Yeah, not the enslaved piece as much but just not being African-American, right? So there's like this, 
this subculture in America of uh, like how the media will portray African-Americans or how, you know, poverty or struggle is often just directly tied to being black. And so there's no other way to be black outside of that. So you can't come to America and not, not do well in school. And you, and there's like tangential examples of what they, what they would use to kind of justify the rationale, right? Like, I'll look at the prison population. Like it's almost entirely black men or black women. Like therefore they have, they have to be inherently more criminal. And then you take a step back and as you're getting educated, then you educate your parents who have this way of thinking because they were also educated by the system that profits and um, is enriched in many ways by continuing to feed us these lies about each other. So if we continue to separate ourselves and make ourselves feel like we're better than another group of people, then yeah. you know we the infighting continues. So then there's never any unity and never any progress as a result of that. You know, it's mm -hmm. a lot. I was I had faces over here while y'all was talking because just the inherent anti-blackness and all of that is like sometimes um you know no not I know no fault to anybody here but sometimes it's just hard to stomach that right and particularly um with the experiences that black Americans um have been through um and I think it's remiss it, we would be wrong and it would be disingenuous to say that black people throughout the diaspora, right, have experienced inherent harms due to these white supremacist ideals. Um, but obviously I'm particularly, I'm, I'm black American. And so um, I'm, I'm a product of the crack era, you know, um, that was heavy in my community at the time. You know, I've seen countless people um, who have lost their lives either to the prison system or just to crack itself. And, all of that, right, like comes with me. Like I bring that to the table um, with my blackness, but also along like these shifting lines of um, reimagining the world for black people and what does liberation really look like for black people. And it always is just so like gut-wrenching to me um, because I don't envision as a black American, I don't envision um, liberation for black people without including the diaspora, right? Like that's just not a thing for me. But at the same time, like I'm so protective and so just want to hold close black Americans because I, I see, um, I have a lot of friends who, who are throughout the diaspora. I've, I've traveled to the continent, you know, only on one occasion, I've been to Mexico studying the black experience and the way that black people just turn, I mean, throughout the diaspora, um, a lot of people just turn their nose at Black Americans is just really hard for me to stomach, right? And even here in this country, the way, like I see it even in the way we turn our nose, um, people throughout the rest of the country to Black Southerners, right? Um, and that I, I, kind of like takes me back to like, so when the election was going on and like Georgia was still like in contention, right? The way people just started going on social media was blasting like, oh, look what y'all did, Georgia can't. And I was like, first of all, the, the, the voting process ain't even done and y'all coming for black people in Georgia's next like this, like, come on. And then the result ended up being what it was. You know, whatever anybody's, um, you know, if, if voting is your form of liberation or whether it's not, it was still just this inherent black, anti-blackness and this mm -hmm. constant dis, dis, display of um, the way we treat black Southerners, right? Particularly, but the way we treat black Americans and, and this disdain 
is so inherently rooted in this anti-blackness. And for me, like I said, I, I'm, I grew up black American. And so that wasn't like, we weren't having those conversations. We were those people, right? Like we mm -hmm. were those people that were kind of walking through those struggles. Um, I don't know, it's, it's a lot for me to say I have, hear that. I just wanna say like, I really didn't know that there was so much anti-blackness um, because until I went up to Boston and I was around more different, I guess I would say different types of Blacks because um, I didn't know people had so much to say about Black Americans because I was just, I'm born and raised in Atlanta. And so, so many of us are Black Americans. So many of the people in my school, I went to a Black school. I just didn't know that there was so much of that. And I was really disheartened to hear the, and to, to hear about the anti-Blackness from other Black people, um, from Caribbean folks, Africans would say about Black Americans. I was just like, wow, this is really disheartening. And so to something that you said, Kunle, and I would be really curious to hear what both Elizabeth and Kunle have to say about this, you know, Black people wanting to pursue their heritage beyond the slave ship, right? So even John saying that the earliest they can go is South Carolina. And there is this movement towards Black people, Black Americans trying to find their roots what do you all feel about how like black Americans are trying to just identify? Cause I feel like in different ways, they are trying to bring out those dashikis. They are trying to do whatever they can to just bring that connection. I remember reading an article where they were like black people wearing um, like black Americans wearing dashikis is appropriation. And I was like, what? This is crazy to me. Oh, but at the same time, I understood what they were saying because it's just like the patterns that come from a specific tribe and you need to have done the research. But then it's just like how much research you got to do to try to have to just try to like satiate that small desire to feel connection to the motherland, you know? But I'm curious, like, how do you all feel about Black people trying to connect back to Africa, connect back to their roots, and then the, the concept of being more African or being more Black than somebody else? Because you all are more from the motherland. And it's just like, do you feel more African? Do you feel like you get to give permission to Black people to um, actually hold in their African culture? What are we gonna say, John? I, I was just gonna come in. I, I, I know this is the one where we let the, the guests talk more. So I'm gonna just say this real quick. I'm so glad you asked that question because me and a friend of mine who's Nigerian, Kunle, by the way, <laughs> um, we, we were in a conversation with some other people and um, I said something about, he said something about, well, I'm the only real African in this group. And I, I got offended, right? Because I'm like, well, I feel like I'm African, but I mean, I am African-American. And we had a whole conversation. I wasn't like, I didn't hold it against him, but I later on told him like, I had a, like a slight tinge because he knows, you know, we've been friends for a long time. So he knows how I feel. And so when he said, well, I'm the only real African. And I remember visiting um, Tanzania one time and it was this white woman who she was from South Africa. She was African. And she said, well, I'm, I remember she made some comment about to the, to the black Americans in the group that she was more African than all of us. And I remember getting, I was really upset with her because she was white. And this is my <laughs> homeboy. So I'm like, you know, you know, I still got love for you. But you a white woman, you 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 ain't got. And I I remember checking her. And at best, a colonizer, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, or at worst, well, you don't tell me you more African than me. Just because you're from Africa, over here and kidnap um damn Sarah Bartman and took her to to Europe and traced her all around France. Don't play with me. Don't play with me. 
You understand what I'm saying? Don't tell me you more African than me just because your people got here in the, in the early part of the 20th century and my people was here long, long, long before. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, I say that to say, because I don't want to take up too much time. Um, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I kind of had a, I, I get a twinge when I hear people say that. And then it takes me like two seconds to be like, you know what? They have a different perspective than me when people say like, I'm not African or you're not a real African or whatever. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts, even if you do say I'm not a real African. Yeah, I want to hear, I just want to hear what's your actual perspective, not just because you own this podcast. I think it's multi-layered. I think on one hand, it's a, they've made it a competition so that we continue to fight each other instead of identifying within ourselves the things that um, feel natural to us, right? Like, you know, so you can see someone and say like, oh, you know, you, your, fe- your facial features resemble someone from Ghana. Your facial features resemble someone from Northern Ethiopia, Southern Ethiopia. Like those are the things that I think um, would build community if we could just help cultivate a sense of like unity. Um, and on the other hand, I think the, like, even I had purchased a few dashikis and I'm, I'm, I haven't like Ethiopian, like there's no dashikis in the Ethiopian, like clothing realm. And I felt weird doing it because I'm like, am I just like buying into this because I like the look? Do I really have any kind of like stake in wearing this if I don't know what it represents? And like, am I, am I commodifying something? Am, am I commodifying someone else's culture? And um, I think it's a fine line of appreciating it versus um, just like ripping, stripping it of its importance and its significance. Like if I saw like Ethiopian dresses just like sold at J. Crew, which they tried to do, I felt some type of way because I'm like, how dare you? You know, like this, mm-hmm. this is re- representative of our culture. If you're doing it to appreciate the culture and to be a part of it and you you trace it back and you you source it with, you know, Ethiopian artists and artisans, sure, but don't do it like don't do it to sell it at J. Crew. No. And either way, it would feel weird to see a Becky walking around in a, in a dashiki. I don't care how much she appreciates. Well, I say that. It, feels, it just feels <laughs> weird. It just feels weird. But but yeah. Mr. Yeah, Silent have, over there. Okay. <laughs> I have I have uh, toxic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have very, very similar um I have very similar opinions. Uh just because I, I've seen so like Beyonce got a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of heat for her blackest king situation because she she took a lot from African cultures. Um but there's there's like like people like John, right? So people like John, I feel like they have an appreciation for Africa and they want to learn about Africa because they realize like how do I say this? So like like okay so like John was saying like his, he doesn't know like where his people come from past a certain length, right? So he's just like looking at Africa in general. Like I know I'm from here. I don't know exactly where I'm from. I know I'm from. He has an appreciation for African culture in general. Those people I appreciate. Those people, you want to wear a dashiki, you want to wear an Ankara, whatever you want to wear, cool. Because you have an appreciation for the culture. Then there's other people because Africa is hot right now. It's a hot topic. Um, You know, they're just going online and looking for, you know, what's a dashiki? Like, you know, I want to wear, you know, Ghanaian print or whatever because it's cool right now, it's the end thing. And I, that to me feels like appropriation and that I'm not here for. Um, I have a question. Sorry, yeah. 
No, that's that's what. So I, I wonder like if we as Africans, like how much can we be gatekeepers of of something we were born into and we have the privilege of knowing that we were born there and like our African brother, our African-American brothers and sisters, like were, were, were they, it was just like a, ge- a question of geography, you know? Like mm-hmm. just the same way that black Americans, like I feel when we come here more or less, right? Like with minus the, the kind of bullying that some of us might've experienced for not, being American enough, um, like wh- where does that kind of divide break down? You know, like can we can we really be gatekeepers of a culture that we had the privilege of being born into, um, at the exclusion of other people who look like us? Who, you know, if their mom had just taken a plane right over and given birth to them there, they would also be African, right? Like, are we, we're no. African because we were born there. And yes, we have some of the cultural kind of attachments to it, but does that make sense? Well, yeah, even even in the same way, I think that like what John was saying about how like the, the white woman from South Africa um, mm-hmm. has, he says that she's more African. I, I don't like subscribe to that. Yeah. So like, I, I go, for me personally, I go based off heritage. So um I don't like if I'm if I'm black like me right now like if I had a child in Korea right now Koreans are not looking at that person as Korean so when I look at black Americans I look at you as I look at you as African because I recognize that that um somewhere down the line you're from Africa to the same extent one I have a personal connection or a personal history to how Black Americans treated me as a, a youth that kind of takes away uh, or to kind of adds to my personal interactions with Black Americans. And then on the other end, I recognize that there are Black Americans out here who just don't care for culture. Like I have, I have no problem with people wanting to know more about Africa, especially Black people. Not only black people, to be to be honest, I could care less if white people want to know about African history. But I, I I appreciate when people like hit me up and are like, you know, I want to learn this about Nigeria. Do you know this, this, that, um, that or the other? Like I appreciate those type of conversations. Um, and I guess maybe it is a little arrogant of me to feel like I could be a gatekeeper. But I think I'm, to me, I'm almost at the point where like I'm trying to protect my culture. Um, because there are so many vultures that will literally try and pick apart um, where you're from, where your people are from for their own selfish gain. And I mean, I, w- I would be like that with Chicago, like people who, like there's a play again, Atlanta, there's a place in Atlanta right now you keep coming for Atlanta uh, next. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we about you to gotta stay here. No, <laughs> I'm a circle no. <laughs> There's a, a Harold's Chicken. Like Harold's Chicken is like a famous Chicago chicken spot. And there's a uh, Harold's Chicken here in Atlanta that serves mild sauce, which is a uh, Chicago sauce. They serve mild sauce in that Harold's. And it don't taste anything like Chicago mild sauce. And that pisses me off. I've never gone to that Harold's because it pisses me off that you're taking from my Chicago culture and you're not representing it correctly. You did it because Chicago, like that spot is hot. You turn it into like a bar. Like it's a, it's a mom and pops hole in the wall type shot. 
and y'all turn it into like a, a lounge hookah type joint. Like it's like you're not appreciating the culture that it comes from. Like you're you're mon you're making it a monetization type situation. And like that's where I like draw the line. Like and so that's like universal for me. Like it's not just like just about being African and being Nigerian. Just in general, when you're taking from a culture that you don't actually appreciate and mm -hmm. just trying to capitalize off of something that's hot, that's why I draw the line uh, of being a gatekeeper. Fair enough. But then like, when do you know? So it's just like, if you see two black people walking towards you and one and both of them have on the same dashiki, how do you interact with them? How do you say, I can tell this brother knows something about something. And then the other one is like, you're a misappropriating ass nigga. Like, what's the difference? <laughs> because what is John and what is not? <laughs> ain't a real nigga if you ain't me. <laughs> you ain't a real nigga. Straight up. I'm just like, in, in our interactions, when do we have those moments where somebody can give enough of a resume or a background to be able to say, this is who I am and this is where I'm coming from. So this justifies things versus a phenotype. So we all know if we did see a Becky walking around with a dashiki, we're, we're like, no relevance. And, and at the same time, though, we're like, we don't know where she came from. She could have had Black parents. She could have had African parents. Maybe she's just trying to appreciate her culture. Like I remember seeing this. I don't know if y'all saw the Voices of Fire Um not a great document, not a great thing on Netflix, but there was this, one of the women in the competition, it was a singing competition. She was white. She was adopted by a Native American family and even by a Native American, and she was adopted by a Native American family. So she lived, I don't know if she lived on a reservation, but either way, I remember early on, she was like wearing braids and stuff. And I was like, why does white girl wearing braids like this? And then there was one point where her um, tribe the they wanted to like honor her for being in the competition so they gave her this jewelry and they gave her all this stuff and so she actually wore it for one of their performances and if i had not known her history and her story i would have been like here's this white girl wearing all of this native jewelry and stuff and it's just like she hasn't i'm imagining that she might not have any connection to it but it's just like this is her story so it's just like where where do we actually get off being gatekeepers or like questioning people or like is it a case-by-case -case situation of course I have no respect for the Kartrashians and so I feel like they have completely like um <laughs> misappropriated all kind of stuff so I'm just like I know you don't respect this because of the way that you talk about it and so but, but I, I don't know I feel like we told the line of being the very like it's just like, who is the identity police? And yet, like you said, Kunle, it's like, but there's something to honoring it and protecting it and saying, I want to protect this. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I'm going to want to, you know, say like, no, or be able to say, well, at limit, I have the right to ask questions because I want to protect this. And I don't just want like the things that are sacred to my people, to my culture, to be just commodified all over the place. I think I mean, you protect it from I'm an sorry. enemy. Oh, say what? Elizabeth? Oh, you protect it from an enemy, right? Like, so if I identify you as an enemy to my culture and to my progress and mm. to my people, then I protect it from you. But I think the, the problem is we mm. protect, we, we perceive others who look like us as enemies simply because they're not, they don't hold the kind of language access. They don't hold the, the birthright access that we we've been fortunate enough to have, right? And the enemies are the people who who wanna divide and, and conquer and destroy, right? But not not other people who didn't have the chance to be born where we were and not to say that because, I mean, I think we can all, I mean, I would say that 
like ideally everyone would have been, no one would have experienced slavery and no one would have been forcefully, forcibly removed from their culture and their country, right? So that, that trauma and that aggression, form of aggression, had that not been there, we would all have been one in the first place, right? So I don't know, I think this conversation is actually very clarifying for me. Um, like I said, Ethiopia is going through very, like a lot of ethnic division and ethnic warfare and as a result, you're able to see like, you know, we as on the front, the face of it, we're all black, right? And so we have the common enemy of racism. And in Ethiopia, we're, we're not, we are, we all look different, right? And nothing about us is uniform in terms of what divides us, you can't really see it. Um, but to be divided by culture, and I mean, to be divided by language and say, oh, you're different, I'm better than you because I speak a different language or because I'm from a different region just shows the the insidious nature of racism and how far it will go to continue to divide and to make sure that we never have the unity that will actually give us the progress we need. Um, so to answer your question, I think we protect it from the enemy and not from each other. And the enemy wants us to think that we in and of ourselves are the enemies of each other. So your interest and your desire to wear the dashiki by all means, cause I don't own it or the Ethiopian clothing, like I don't own it. And your interest in reconnecting with your heritage is honorable and you know like if, if we can help each other along the path we should right because I'm, I'm sure I've met other people who know much more about Ethiopia than I will ever know you know and I think there's some share some this this conversation is always a struggle for me because part of my journey um through black identity has been having to grapple with my and I'm gonna be very honest my lack of connection um to or be able to kind of trace my roots back to the continent but an absolute desire to do so because at, at heart right who i am is a pan-africanist and i believe in the unity of the diaspora um but it's also it's also always a struggle like there's so much so to sit here and act like and i'm not saying that this is what we're doing but just generally speaking to sit here and act as if the only culture that is being taken is from the continent as if black american culture isn't being commodified and taken and and used all over the world right and very specifically poor black people right, right. and yeah. so i think it's disingenuous to go, to only talk about culture and not include that as black americans right our culture is being taken at these enormous rates and people all types of people not just black people but all types of people are being able to commodify and participate in capitalistic nature with this right and so um, I think there needs there needs to generally be a better under uh, um, some grace given right um, mm -hmm. and some understanding of black people of saying that you know there there is this disruption but through that disruption right like we often talk about slavery and sometimes I I, uh, I get frustrated how we flame slavery. It was like, oh, if this happened, we shouldn't just talk about this. We need to talk about this because we need to uplift and hold high what our ancestors not only were able to come through, but what they were able to provide. And this whole culture that has been begotten because of the slave, right, mm -hmm. needs to be appreciated and needs to be respected. And it is that culture that is being commodified all over. And so we, we can't have this conversation of, you know, people borrowing or taking or stealing from subcultures without really acknowledging that that is being done with Black Americans. That's true. Um, so, yeah. Very true. Thank you for that. I, uh, I was just going to say that I agree. And I think maybe that I'm learning a lot from this conversation because I think that uh, I, 
I'm a no new friends type of nigga. So <laughs> if I if I don't if I don't see um, if I don't know you personally, like if I didn't know John personally, I would think that he's trying to appropriate my culture. Um, yeah. And and I think that you a lot of a lot of what Christina said is accurate. Like there is a lot that's taken from black and me being American and uh, African. Like I, I understand you know both sides of that. Like. I think that because I identify more with Nigerian, I tend to, to weigh more on that side. But like, you know, there's a lot that Black Americans have, a lot that's stolen from Black American culture that, I don't know, I think I think my own personal, my own personal stance, and you know, this is something that I'll probably need to work on, but I think my own personal stance comes from um, my childhood and, and how I was treated by Black Americans. Um, even though I, I am have, I mean, and even now, like I, I, I have conversations um, where, you know, like black Americans will tell Africans that you're not black. Like you don't really get to sit at this table and have these conversations because you don't really understand the experience. And to an extent, I understand it. Cause again, I understand both sides. Like I understand the, the negative views that Africans have against Americans just as much as I understand the negative views that Black Americans have against Africans. So I, while I recognize it, I think that there's just a, there, it's just something that I have to work on within myself, honestly, because I, I really just, I really don't care to see, <laughs> I really don't care to see like my culture being appropriated, especially for America. And like, I have an issue with America, honestly. If my family didn't live here, I would have been gone. So it's like to see, to see my, like, it would be different if Ghana was an appropriating culture. But like the, the feelings that I have towards America, let me be very clear. I do not care what you're trying to do. Like, I don't care how good your intents are. If you are white and you are wearing African clothing, I do have a problem with that. That will never change. With black people, it's a little different. But with white people, like, I just, I'm, I'm going to rant. So I'm just going to stop there. But like, because I, I could go on with that. But I, I, I'm I'm appreciative of this conversation because I'm learning a lot, like even from how I view things on my own. Okay, there was so much that we just covered, and I feel like this is part two, and we could go up to part fifteen, and we were just really just getting into the conversation. There's so much. Oh my goodness. Okay, I, I know we're about to segue into the uh, into the um, takeout boxes real quick, but two things. Okay. So this question is for Christina and for Elizabeth. Um, music. Uh, Elizabeth, being of Ethiopian descent, how do you feel about um, particularly Jamaicans, um, people who are considered to be Caribbean and African-Americans um, 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 subscribing to uh, the principles and the religious, some people would say religious and social ideas of um, his Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. I know that um, that story is extremely significant to black people, particularly um, people who consider pro-black, pan-African, whatever. And so, um, but at the same time, some people may argue that that's, maybe an Ethiopian person might argue that that's appropriation. I never looked at it that way because I, particularly in college, I was also, inspired by um, by a lot of his teachings. I was inspired by the Rastafarian movement. Um, and so I was just curious as to that. And then Christina, being of uh, Mexican descent, 
I've always wondered, do Mexicans or people who are Latinx, do they consider the Migos <laughs> cultural appropriating? Because I'm like, if you think about it, the Migos, that's, that's not Black. That's Amigos. That's them. You know what I'm saying? Okay, I, was, I was like, is that appropriation? Should we not be be bumping, you know what I'm saying? I've never thought of that before in my life. <laughs> Is that not true though? Is it not true though? So I really feel like in in at to, to show respect to Che Guevara, to show respect to Cesar Chavez, you know what I'm saying? And J-Lo, maybe I shouldn't be bumping the me. I'm, I'm about to get up. No, he did not. Never. <laughs> J-Lo. 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 Chill. Queen of appropriate Because J-Lo also said that it's okay for her to say the N-word. So, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's balancing. Wrong again. <laughs> she said it in, in no. she was up out there with John Rue. She did say it in that song. Yeah. And it. we don't give love and respect to J-Lo. No. Uh, the queen made an entire career off appropriating black women? Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. She she set the roadmap for the Kardashians. That's right. <laughs> right. So yeah. So I'm just interested yeah. to know what, you know, do y'all consider that appropriation? You know what I'm saying? Okay, which question first? I don't know. <laughs> Should we just hear up do this Migos one? <laughs> Listen, I'll, I'll make it quick. As, as I have said, um, I don't think that I don't, I, I've never heard anybody say that about the Migos ever in my life. Um, and I will reiterate a comment, you know, kind of a statement earlier that Black American culture, particularly through entertainment, is so valued, right? And there's something to um, be gained from people who kind of align themselves with that. So that is not anything that I have ever heard in my life. Um, <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> I think what you asked about the Jamaicans and Rastafarian culture, I think it's beautiful. I had a friend when I was living in London who grew up in Ethiopia, but she, her family, her, both her parents are Jamaican. And so she identifies, they both identify as Ethiopian. They speak Ethiopian, flu, I mean, Amharic fluently. And it's like, it's really, it's, I, it's like, if we could all just be so unified, right? Like if you, like Black people who, like just the same way when we come here, Black people embrace and support us. Um, as a culture, I think we, as a people, when they when Ethiopia when people come to Ethiopia with love and respect and a desire to connect with their culture, is why not? It's beautiful. Cool, cool. All right. Well, thank you for that. And now we are at our take bo- takeout boxes section. This is where we just say, what are our major takeaways from this conversation? Anyone feel free to start. There's so much. I'm still kind of stuck on like the idea of um, commodity and economic, like like financial, like the financial exchange that comes along with um, culture and cultural appropriation. Um, yeah, like it, it just yeah. I I guess I'm thinking not only when it comes to 
dashikis and other expressions of culture, but I'm also thinking about who gets to claim reparations um, mm-hmm. and how talk about that. and how so much of identity <clears throat> just becomes exchanged in like a capitalistic market and like who gets to claim it and who doesn't, like who gets legitimacy based on like this economic measure. Um, and I was trying to look up, there's this concept by um, super deep thinker, Orlando Patterson um, called, like the concept is called natal alienation. And the idea is that black folks, when we were forcibly moved from Africa, we experienced natal alienation, which is like natal mm. in terms of like, wow, I love that. What is, what is natal? Like that's like the birth, yeah. first birth. Yeah. So we experienced like a natal alienation being separated and disconnected mm. from our homeland, our culture, our people, just like anything that is bestowed upon you in birth, like we were disconnected mm. from. Um, but there's a part to this concept of natal alienation that also has to do with commodity. It's like, once you've experienced that separation, like commodification, like the door to commodification is opened. Mm. Um, so it's just making me think about how commodity and economics and capitalism all kind of influence who gets to claim, um, who gets to, who like gets to claim certain identities. Um, so I'm just thinking about thinking about that a lot. And also thinking about like the complexity of gatekeeping because gatekeeping, I think, pushes back against commodity and capitalism in a certain way and it's important, but it's also complicated because who gets to gatekeep and who gets to come in the door and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Sorry to make it more academic than street. No, that's what, what we're here for. <laughs> that's fine. I need to look up some words. <laughs> Need a dictionary. <laughs> Goodbye, John. I can I can go. Um, and then of course all of our co-hosts, please too. Um, our guests. I'm just I really can just say I'm just super grateful for this conversation because it's two things I'm left with. One, it's just cultural humility. Like there's always more to learn about anyone's experience. Um, and I'm not gonna sit here and think I know it all ever. I'm not gonna say I know it all about the black experience because I've had one type of black experience. And honestly, I really feel hurt for like, what from what I'm hearing from all of our guests, the experience that you had growing up, um, just really being bullied for your identity and specifically for Elizabeth and Kunle, bullied by black Americans or other black people. Um, about being African and I'm just like that to me is just I'm just hurt for that because it's just like it feel it, it especially for you Kunle the way that you kind of talk about like these people it's just like there's still something that feels like it's kind of there for you that it's just like that was really traumatizing and why would it not be it's like as a child you will get traumatized by being bullied because you are other in some kind of way and it's just like that doesn't leave fast. Um, and it, it's like, it can still be there for many, many years. It's like, you're still gonna be dealing with it. And not to say like you like some, I'm not trying to say like you wounded and broken. I'm just saying like, it's in us. It's just like being a child and whatever was there, it is so much with that. And I'm just, I just feel hurt for, for that. And for all of the people who've ever experienced that in, in childhood and growing up and being, you know, being at, 
it's just the separation between all the types of black. Um, and I remember hearing the phrase African booty scratcher back in the day and not thinking of it at all yeah, because I don't know, it just, it didn't occur to me, but because African was kind of different and, and like how black Americans did sometimes kind of like speak in jest about African ways of being. And even now I really hate even talking, saying African culture as though that's one thing. And it's just like, yo, it's so many different countries and in ethnicities and cultures within Africa to even say African culture is just like, that is not sufficient of a term at all. And it's just, it that, so it's just like cultural humility is something that I'm sitting with and I'm gonna continue to sit with and feel like, okay, I wanna learn more about my people and also honor the fact that I don't know enough and there's always something to learn. And then the other thing is I'm still stuck on uh, the US Virgin Islands and the British Virgin Islands. And I'm just like, I need a map. I need another map. And so I'm just- not a, It's not a map. It's like, you need a, you need a historical, like a dated map. Like when was this who's- I need something completely different. Like my little Africa map is not enough. I already knew that, but just like, I know that there's a term called in map and see where it's just like based on the way that maps were formed, we learn certain things about the world and come to different understandings about the world. And one is just that I feel like I just did don't, I didn't and I still don't have enough of, a, of appreciation for how Brazil was like the main port for slaves even and how there's so many black people I mean so many Africans who were in Brazil and all of the struggles that they have had and really thinking about like the entire Caribbean the entire of uh, the entirety of North America to South America and the impact on the slave trade and all the the descendants of Africans who are across the whole thing like I don't feel like I have had enough of appreciation for that because I've kind of like you know been very America centric like well, US centric and it just, it's like cultural humility and I need to get some more maps that are connected to um, history in some kind of way. It's just, I really, so I just really appreciate this whole conversation. So thank you all. Yeah, my, um, I think my takeout box, um, it kind of, it kind of comes from what Kunle was saying. Cause you know, I kind of came into the conversation again, kind of thinking, you know, yeah, you know, people of African descent should accept African Americans. And, you know, you know, there should be, you know, we're all one and pan African and blah, blah, blah. And I think after listening to these conversations, I'm like, well, yeah, I understand now. Like, if you have this group that's calling you African booty scratcher or, yeah. you know, who, who are not accepting towards you, even though they also don't feel accepted from that same group, then they're going to feel some kind of way. And, you know, kind of what, what, what Elizabeth said, you know, I, and I like how she reframed this notion of the enemy, um, but it's really whiteness that has divided us. And mm -hmm. I can understand now what Kunle was kind of saying, not only from an international perspective, but even from a regional perspective, like we want to protect Nigerian culture. I want to protect Nigerian culture. I want to protect Chicago culture. You know what I'm saying? So all of us are trying to protect all of this stuff from each other when it wasn't each other that exploited it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is stuff that we've been taught, but now we're using it to kind of like say Black Americans are like, nah, I won't want y'all, you know, participating in trap music or well hip hop is really black American and then you know certain African cultures may say well dashikis are us you know and that's African and that's not African American or whatever and it's like I, I get it now like I shouldn't be so quick to cast out you mm. know a person of Caribbean descent or of African descent if 
they're not as quick to accept me because you know they are just trying to protect things that have been taken and exploited and eradicated you know you know and unearthed from 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 their culture and used against them or commodified in a way that has not you know reproduced you know positivity and reproduced advancement in you know among their own people you know what i'm saying and so I, I I get that now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I understand that now. And I wish we would have had time to even go into that regional part because the way Christina talked about, yeah. like, even understanding, you know, not just, you know, the look of how Black Americans in general are, are viewed, but particularly those from the South, right? Yeah. The slower ones, the ones that are, you yeah, know... The South? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and we we go do a whole other kind, but but I, I I think that, and I know we joke about it, but I think that's really interesting, right? Because yeah, you do have, and then even among the Southerners, the urban Southerners versus yeah. the rural Southerners. So somebody from Atlanta versus somebody from like Albany, you know what I'm saying? Or like Huntsville, or you know, people from someone from Huntsville, someone from Mobile, or something. So it's just so many like yeah. nuances and subsects of our own culture that I think sometimes. Um, you know, there, there, there is just this intraracial tension that, you know, that we have to, you know, find ways to kind of pick apart and figure out why does this exist and have even more of these conversations because it's, it's so much deeper than just Black American, non-Black Americans. You know what I'm saying? We can, we, I mean, we can go on for another two, three hours, you know, talking about this thing. So, but I think that that was definitely the thing I, I took away is I need to be more patient with my non-Black American brothers and sisters because, for many of them, it's not an affront on me. It's really just a protection of, of who they are, where they're from. And so I, I, that's, that was my takeaway, for sure. Um, I'll piggyback off of that because I think I have similar sentiments. Um, there's definitely a uh, continued and um, renewed gain in appreciation for the diaspora through this conversation. Um, and I think the thing that also is sitting with me is that, you know, we're kind of going around and like naming these harms that have been done to Black people throughout the diaspora and really need to name that this is white supremacy right. um, yeah. that has created these divides. Um, and so what does reimagining these relationships, right? Um, and building community, um, not just here, but um, throughout the diaspora kind of look like. And so that's gonna sit with me. For me, I'm reminded of um, something, I'm, I have a public health background and something that we often spoke about and was um, maternal black maternal mortality rates. Um, and when I was pregnant with my daughters, they, it, it just really struck home that um, the experience of racism in this country has measurable impacts on a woman's likelihood of delivering a full-term healthy baby. Um, and so when we think about, oh, I'm, when I like think about myself and my identity, like I can say that I'm Ethiopian, but the experience of racism in this country has unified me with my African-American sisters in, in, in this experience. It's just, it just takes one generation of living in this country for our bodies to um, deteriorate enough to um, to have a different childbearing experience than white women in this country. So I think there is there's an undeniable 
reality that racism impacts all of us, um, whether or not we're um, one generation removed from Africa or many generations removed from Africa. And so if we continue to kind of name our enemy and um, collide against that enemy instead of each other, I think that's really the only way forward. Yeah, um, I agree. I, I, I think that the the biggest thing that I've taken away from this is is that uh, the common enemy is white supremacy. Um, you know, I, I still have to, I still have to work within within myself because, like I said, I'm 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 protective of of everything. Um, I'm protective of my mother against my father. Like I'm protective of everybody. Like I'm just I'm a protective person. So uh, I think that it, it it takes some some understanding and just understanding in in how both cultures that I'm comprised of work. Um, but yeah, I, I really did. I really did appreciate this conversation because honestly, I, I'm, I've taken away a lot more than I thought I would have. I thought I was going to give a lot. I didn't realize how much I was going to take away from it um, because it, it, it's it's true. Like, And I, I honestly hope that I can identify and adapt the way that Elizabeth thinks um, just in like the this who is the enemy, essentially, um, because I, I do. I, I love black people. Um, and even though you know, you know, yeah, you know, Caribbeans, uh, you know, I, I might, I might joke around, you know, hey, you know, it's it's Africa versus everybody, or it's you know, West Africans versus Africans. Uh, I mean, West Indians versus Africans. You know, you know, whatever the case may be, like I might joke around a lot, but in general, I really do love black people, and I think that if I if I'm honest about that, then I need to start showing more understanding um, to the to the plights of different different sections of people into it. I really appreciated your your vulnerability and your honesty about growing up. I think you, both you and Christina um, yeah. and sharing that, the kind of trauma that is experienced in that. Yeah. So thank you for, for sharing that. And thank you guys for having us on. I think this was really good conversation. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all for coming. This is this is really enlightening me in so many ways. And as Christina was saying, we have, and as Christina said, and as um, I feel like Elizabeth gave the language to us, like who is the enemy? The common enemy is, is black. This is not about black on black nothing. <laughs> this is, we know what, who the enemy actually is and it is white supremacy culture, systemic racism, all of that. Um, and any behavior that comes from black people against other black people is because of that. Um, it's more than likely nine times out of nine, more than likely. And so I do feel like that's so important. And because one thing Kunle said is, I love black people. We love black people. We all love black people. That's we the point. This is about black love. This is about black love. So thank you all for coming. Johnny, you want to close us out? Man, this was this was phenomenal. Um, I'm just so blessed. Uh just want to make sure all hearts and minds are clear. All hearts and minds are clear. Everybody good? Cool. Yo, it's been another episode of Street Academy Podcast where we keep one foot in the academy and one foot in the street. Zeets, I want to give uh, each of the guests uh, an opportunity to give their handles, talk about what you're doing, what you got going on, websites, projects, whatever. This is your time to, uh, to go ahead and talk about that. So uh, we can go to Christina, Kunle, and then Elizabeth. Um, and then we'll go ahead and close out. 
All right, y'all. So um, my handle on Twitter, Instagram is Tina Foster, T-E-E-N-A Foster. Um, and I'm doing, working on a lot of different things. So that'll be popping up soon. So I'll just wait to kind of highlight that when it comes. So, yeah. What do you do, Christina? I, I didn't get that. So I'm actually an educator um, slash working on some organizing here in the city. Yes. So. And mommy, mommy it up. So, uh -huh. um, so yeah, your boy Plantain Poppy. Um, <laughs> my handle is Love Kunle. Um, I, I don't really care too much about my personal page. My business page is Freed Up Creative. Uh, as most of you know, Freed Up Creative is a platform for Black businesses and Black creatives. Um, and so we have just launched a new project um, called the Greenwood Exchange, which will um, be essentially a black marketplace for black brands, black consumers, black businesses, black products, black services. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited about that. Um, we're, we're still working on funding, but we we just started that, that project last month. Um, so yeah, follow us for updates and all of that. Um, on the personal side, I make music. I'm working on my next album called Introversion. Um, and that is me. Oh, and I'm also married to Jackie. So, you know, working on being a better husband every day. That good stuff. Black, Black love. Love it. So I am a mom full time, but I am also a writer. Um, you can find my writing at elizabethasefa.com. My last name is spelled A-S-E-F-A. -E um, and my... Instagram handle is probably somewhere on my website. <laughs> I don't know it by heart, but my website, that's elizabethasafi.com. Yeah. Nice, nice. And coolly, I just want to say, I've been wearing the, uh, the hoodie. Me too. Just like around, folks been asking. They was like, yo, what is that? Like, what do those dates mean? Yeah. I remember, I was like, I know one of them was like Tulsa and then one of them was something like that. So anyway, I just want to let you know, the streets is talking, they ready. <laughs> the hood, the hood, ready for the release, baby. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Um, my name is You can find me at J Paul Grant. Uh, Instagram, the um, Uh, my website and um, Facebook, J A Y space P space G E for Facebook and yeah, that's what I am. My name is Amber Camila. Um, I'm not active for real on social media, but if you would like, it's at Amber Camila on Instagram. But the one, the project that I am starting that I really do, that is going to come, I've been working on it for a while, is Relearn Anything. It used to be Relearn Everything, but it's at Relearn Anything on Instagram. Do follow it. There will be something there soon. And I am at Jack Demission on all of the things. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, it's been another episode, y'all. Street Academy Podcast. Thank y'all for joining us. Follow us at Street Academy Podcast. It's spelled the way that you would think it would be spelled. We yeah. love y'all. Peace out. Bye. Peace out. Oh, 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 I want to play my song. No, got their feet apart. The neck of the haters, the game and the devil. I came in.